And as I was trying to share this news with my friends, my family, then I started to find out that there were some intellectual challenges to my faith. And that was apparently I believed in Jesus because I was, you know, misled by Christian, a Christian translation of the Old Testament. Hello, friends, and welcome to today's video from Jews for Jesus. Jeff Morgan here. We have a fascinating video for you today. Bible scholar, PhD in Hebrew Bible, author, father, husband, my friend, and much more. Seth Postel is joining us today, and he'll be sharing his story about how a Jewish kid from Jersey that hated himself finds the perfect love of Jesus. Welcome to our YouTube channel and playlist where we hold rational and logical discussions with leading scholars regarding the existence of God and Jesus as the Messiah. I'm Jeff Morgan, and I'm part of the Jews for Jesus team here in Israel. Uh, today, we have a special guest. We have Seth Postel with us today. Seth Postel is the academic dean of the uh, Israel College of the Bible. He has a PhD in Hebrew Bible. He's the author of two books and many published articles and essays on the Bible. He's a father of three children, husband of one wife, and is here to share with us about one of the most explicit messianic prophecies in the Hebrew scriptures or Old Testament, and in other words, Tanakh. Welcome, Seth. It is a joy and a privilege to have you here today. Thanks, Jeff. Great to be here. Privilege. Yeah, thank you. Can you explain uh, about how you, as a Jewish man that grew up in Jersey, in Jersey, came to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, Son of God and Savior of the world? Yeah, actually, you know, I can go two routes, but for me, it was actually not an intellectual thing at first. It was actually a very personal thing. It was um, coming into, you know, meeting Jesus, the Jew. I, I you know, I, probably like you, I grew up um, thinking that Jesus was a Catholic, right? I, my best friend, I had no idea he was Jewish. I mean, I don't know about you, but I had no idea he was Jewish. And, you know, I didn't know when I was young. You know what do you know about jesus you know that um he's related somehow to the easter bunny santa claus and you know i guess there was a side where i thought wow my my catholic friend has a way better holiday than hanukkah i mean it's you know how did how does hot how did you know christmas and god there's comparison so you know um as far as my my knowledge of jesus it was just very it was very much through that there was no there was no access to the jewish jesus and, you know, my mom and dad, and again, I'm going to give you the short version of it, but my mom wrestling through the scriptures and wrestling through the meaning of life, she she came to faith in Yeshua and Jesus. My father was very upset, threatened her not to talk to me. I was the youngest. My, other, my siblings had already left the house. I was the youngest. And it just kind of went through some, you know, some major changes in our family. But for me, what ended up happening was... Um, obviously I saw it was something that was something really good that happened to my mother. But for me personally, I came to a bit of a crisis. I came to a place of just, just, a, a dark period in my life where, um, I felt lost and felt ugly and felt, um, as if God hated me and, and I hated myself. And so I was pretty sure that God hated me like the rest of the world. And, and it was just in this moment of just being totally down on and out and struggling with an addiction and just lost that I I met Jesus and I didn't actually care if he was Jewish or not Jewish at that time. It was just I met Jesus and he 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 was he he loves me with 
with a perfect love and and it was just something that was so radically transforming i my chains instantly came off and then and then as i was trying to share this news with my friends my family then i started to find out that there were some intellectual challenges to my faith and that was apparently i believed in jesus because I was, you know, misled by Christian a Christian translation of the Old Testament, or, you know, if Jesus is truly the Messiah, why did the rabbis reject him? And, you know, who do you think you are? You, you know, you, you know the Bible better than the rabbis. And so, for me, my intellectual journey became a very important part of my faith when, when I started meeting opposition, and realizing that, you know. To me, I'd look at these passages in the Hebrew Bible and the, the Old Testament, and they were just so clear. Like, this is so clear. And then you suddenly realize that it's not so clear to everybody. And you start to learn the arguments of why it's not so clear to everybody. And it challenged me. And I started in a very long path of, of um, learning the Hebrew Bible as best as I could. And, and I'm still learning. You, you know... Um... Biblical Hebrew and Greek, yes, I, I do, I do. Yeah, which is really helpful in understanding, you know, the the original manuscripts and the meanings and the con, con uh, the context behind many of the words that some sometimes and also many of the uh, passages that are taken out of context, which is really helpful. Um, what? Yeah, what just, is a, a? I was just going to say, you know, interesting enough in terms of Greek. Greek, knowing Greek is not only helpful for the New Testament. Uh, in fact, you know, we know that the, the the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek before the time of Jesus, right? Uh, or on several of the other books. And so, many times, the, this the Septuagint preserves not just the translation of the Hebrew Bible, but an interpretation of the Hebrew Bible that comes before the time of Jesus. And in many cases, these are the very interpretations that were key. Uh, and identify Jesus as the Messiah. And so understanding the Greek right. is not just about, you know, it's not just for reading the New Testament. It's actually for, for, for understanding the Hebrew Bible. Right. So what you're saying is the Septuagint, which is uh, the Hebrew scriptures translated into Greek by 70, I don't know, wise men scholars, you could say Jewish scholars. Well, um, yeah, I was, that's actually a myth. In other words, the, 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 the whole notion that it was translated by 70 rabbis who sat in separate rooms and they came up with the, the identical translation, that's a bit of a myth. And but, but the reason that the myth is so important to us, it comes out of the letter to Aristeas, which is, in, you know, it, that's a document from the, you know, pre-Christian times. But the, the, the reason why that myth is so important is because it's obviously an attempt to encourage the Jewish community to embrace the Septuagint as a, mm -hmm. a, a a translation. In other words, the myth itself shows the veneration and the respect that the Septuagint commanded up until up until the rabbis rejected it in the you know the debates about Jesus. But sure. but the Septuagint, yes, it, it's a Greek translation of the of the Old Testament uh, from a time before Jesus. Okay, great. So what? Let's get into uh, messianic prophecy. First of all, what is a messianic prophecy for those that don't know? Yeah, so you know we can go more generally and say that the the Old Testament nobody would deny this. The Hebrew Bible promises better days. 
the Hebrew Bible is very aware of the world. The world that we live in is not the world that, you know, it's not an ideal world, right? And that there's pain, there's suffering, there's sorrow. When it comes specifically to the Jewish people, um, a lot of, of a lot of the biblical history comes within the context of of failure to attain God's standards, God's promises to bless Israel and the nations. And so you have you have within the Hebrew Bible constantly um, this tension between the now, uh, which is uh, we consistently, continually disobey God. And 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 that comes against or or it comes in conflict with with promises of a better day. And so you have a lot of passages that that we would call you know in, you know I guess in technical terms eschatology or passages about the last days, right? But the last days is kind of a broad concept uh, that deals with some some kind of a redemption and some kind of a redeemer. And so when we talk about a messianic prophecy, we're typically specifically talking about those passages that that were written to foretell uh, the work, the coming, the reign, or even the suffering of Israel's future redeemer, a future leader, a future ruler, a future priest, if you were, uh, that would ultimately bring about Israel's redemption and be the key uh, to bringing blessing to all nations. Okay, so so when we come to what's considered a messianic prophecy, that's what you need to consider. How it relates to the one that is coming to be the redeemer of not just the Jewish people, but all people. Correct, and just let me just simply say this, that you know, one of the, one of the things that separated the God of Israel from the other gods was that there weren't just predictions within paganism there were all sorts of predictions right and that was part of you know they would read the entrails they would spill the entrails of animals and read the signs and the times but the god of israel is the god who um could accurately uh tell us what would be and that's obviously you know you see this in deuteronomy the test of a true prophet is right. a prophet that speaks uh faithfully with respect to the scriptures and accurately with respect to the future. And so the whole notion that there would be messianic prophecy would be totally expected uh, within the context of the God of Israel. And in fact, how would you know that the God of Israel is truly the God of Israel is because he could predict uh, things before they took place. And that's actually a polemic in the book of Isaiah. That's what distinguishes. God said, I already told you these things would happen exactly like this before they happen. Right. Well, when I learned that 28%, I guess roughly speaking, of the Old Testament is prophetic, I was really surprised. You know, when most people think of the Hebrew Scriptures or the Tanakh, they think of the Law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, the account, the, the creation account, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on, Joseph. And, and, but if 28% if of the Hebrew Scripture is prophetic, that's incredibly significant. Well, I, you know, it's interesting. You could actually play with these percentages a little bit because how do you judge? So how do you judge how much percent of a book is about eschatology or about prophecy in the future? Let, let me give you an example of what I mean. So how much of the book of Narnia, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe is about Aslan? Uh, right? Not much. Well, 
yes and no. In other words, why why was the you know why was the book written? The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was written in order to point us to Aslan, but right. most of the book Aslan is doesn't even appear in the book. It's it's like yeah. But every aspect of that book, in some form or fashion, is preparing the way for the lion. And I say this because you know if you you know if we're going to count heads. You know, if we're going to count heads and say, okay, this verse is about the Messiah, but the context is, you know, that the, the next chapter is not, that can be a little bit misleading because I would argue that, you know, even the Torah, uh, the way that it's structured as a story, the whole of the story leads us to the last days. It leads us to God's promise to give us a, a circumcised heart and the coming of a, of a of the king. And so, how much percent of the Torah is messianic? Well, you could count the verses and say less than 1%. Or you can look at how the story is structured and you can say 100%. Yeah, I see what you mean. Well, there is one prophecy that you especially enjoy teaching. Some call it the forbidden chapter. Uh, it kind of gets your curiosity sparked. And I've heard some say, well, this, this section right here is for the Christians. Uh, but there it is, you know, right in the Old Testament. So which prophecy is that? That would be Isaiah 53. So in Israel, for instance, children learn, I live in Israel, you live in Israel, children learn from the Hebrew scriptures, yet this chapter is skipped over. Uh, why is it considered the forbidden chapter? Yeah, well... You know, it's interesting. There was an article that came out several years ago by an Israeli scholar. It wasn't even it was it was it was in a newspaper article where he talked about you know you know in the in the synagogue we read the Torah portion every week and and you have actually with the Torah portion you have a prophetic section and this Israeli scholar basically argued that the Torah that the Haftorah readings the prophetic readings have been surgically altered to remove any and any passage that in the new testament was key for identifying jesus as the messiah and he argues that it was intentionally done so that the conversation about jesus would not be taking place within the synagogues anymore and so isaiah 53 is just one of those passages and in fact it's it's one of the most graphic passages about um, about the suffering servant who innocently takes upon himself the iniquities, the sins of others, and dies in their place. And he does so all the while the people for whom he is dying think he's the one that deserves to die. Think he's the one that, you know, deserves, you know, that he's despised and he's rejected. And yet this this suffering servant becomes the key to the to the nation's redemption for their forgiveness of sins. So here in Israel and actually in the States, what I've experienced as well, this seems to be the number one chapter in the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh, that people go to to show the Messiah or Jesus in the Tanakh. Why is that? Yeah, because the Jewish concept of the Messiah um, is typically a Messiah who is, um, you know, victorious, establishes a kingdom of peace. He's the son of David. And so one of the things that's constantly being said is if Jesus was truly the Messiah, there'd be peace in the world, you know? And so obviously right. Jesus can't be the Messiah, right? Or, you know, if Jesus was the Messiah, how is it possible that our leaders rejected him? 
Well, Isaiah 53 explains all of that because Isaiah 53 explains that, you know, this servant of the Lord will be rejected and despised by his own people. Yet at the same time, he will die and, and it describes a, 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 a death that's clearly violent. He's put to death. He's executed. And, and Isaiah 53, the vantage point is that the nation realizes, wow, the very one that we rejected is actually the one that came to save us. He, he was the one that gave his life in our places. And so if you're going to be sharing Jesus with, with an Israeli, you're going to be sharing Jesus, you know, that would be one of the best places to go because it's such a clear passage. And in fact, years ago, I was with an Israeli couple and uh, they, you know, very educated, both of them. He was a successful businessman. She was the pr principal of a high school. Um, and, you know, they knew we were believers. And so she asked me, how is it that you believe in, you know, you kind of mix Christianity and Judaism and what, why in the world do you believe this? So I said, listen, I'd like to read a passage. I'm going to read a passage from somewhere. And you have two, you're, you're, you have you have two tests. You need to tell me where I'm reading from and who it's about. And so I took a Hebrew Bible, didn't tell her, and I and I read Isaiah 53. And when I finished, she immediately said, oh, that's the New Testament, that's Jesus. And I looked at her and I said, you're half right, <laughs> right? And then, I, and then I held up the Bible I had received, the Hebrew Bible I had received in the IDF in the Israeli army. So she would know it's a kosher Bible. Right. And I said, I just I just read this from the Hebrew Bible. And she, she looked at her husband. She said, wow, that's Jesus. Right. And so I think just by virtue of the fact that it's a passage that so clearly explains all the, the gospel passion narratives, that that the gospels spend a lot of time on the atoning death of Jesus. And Isaiah 53 explains explains to us that rationale, the prophecy or the prediction uh, that, that needed to be fulfilled. Yeah, it, it reminds me of when, um, when I came to faith um, a few years back. Um, my wife and I came to faith at the exact same time through a miraculous series of events. And when I got to Isaiah 53, this was just, just before I... I fully gave my life to Yeshua, to Jesus. And I was in the gym working out and um, I was talking to a, a pastor friend of mine that we worked out together. And I came across Isaiah 53 and I said, have you read it? Have you read Isaiah 53, the forbidden chapter? And he looks at me like, well, yeah, of course. And I was like, what? I, I never knew about this. I never knew this. And actually one of the most miraculous things was that I hadn't even read the New Testament before I came to faith. And that's a whole nother story because it's a miracle in and of itself how it all happened. But this is about Isaiah 53 and how when I saw that passage, and I think anybody that's watching this should read that, should go right now, open up whatever it is, if it's on your computer, if it's on your uh, an app on your phone or a Bible that you have at home, Hebrew, English, whatever, open it up, read Isaiah 53. And you'll see actually starting with 52, but we'll get into that in a second. Has this prophecy always been considered a messianic prophecy even before the time of Jesus? No, that, that's, a, that's a really difficult question. Um, and the reason I say it's a difficult question, it was not a 
you know, in terms of an early history of interpretation, you know, there's not there's not a lot on it. But what I can say is this: is that you can see Jewish interpretation in the Talmud, for instance, and in other 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 Jewish interpretations did regard this as a prophecy about the Messiah. Um, so, you know, and again, what what's interesting, we'll talk about it maybe in a minute, is that there actually is another prophet in the Hebrew Bible that that clearly is referring to Isaiah 53 in a way that's very different than rabbinic than the rabbinic interpretation or the, the or the the, the the Rashi's interpretation I should say yeah well well let's get into that then there there are some rabbinic interpretations about Isaiah 53 that I wanted you to to, to get into so if you can talk about some of those that would be helpful well, there's really only one, right? Okay. In the sense that the one that changed the conversation was Rashi's. And so just Rashi, if you don't know, he was a rabbi that lived uh, during the period of the first crusades. And he lived in a horrific time and Jews were sadly being murdered in the name of Jesus. And he witnessed in Germany, there was a horrific, you know, massacre of the Jewish people. Um, and you know, Rashi lived in a time too where the first crusade, they'd actually conquered the Holy Land. Okay. Why is that significant? Because there was an argument between the synagogue and the church as to who is the true Israel, which is sad that believers would ever argue that, right? And so when the Christians, the Catholic Church basically took the land of Israel, right? That for them was proof that that the church had replaced Israel because they've received all the land promises. Now they've taken over. So Ashi lived in a time when, you know, when a lot of Jewish people were in a bit of a crisis of faith. I mean, there was they were living in horrific conditions underneath Christian Europe. Israel was in the hands of Christians and so there were Jews that were in a crisis of faith and so Rashi's Bible commentary particularly seven books um, were really influenced by his polemics against Jesus and so he wanted to he wanted to kind of give a running commentary on scripture that provided fast easy refutations of the messianic interpretation of the bible and many times he did that interpretations he provided they were very, they're very sophisticated but in many cases he would go against what the rabbis before him had said about the Hebrew Bible. And so Isaiah 53, his interpretation, which really has stood stood the test of time in terms of the Jewish community, uh, the Jewish community too, even modern scholarship, and that is that Isaiah 53 is about the people of Israel. Israel that's suffering for nations. Yeah, but... This interpretation is problematic when it comes to the justice of, of God. Um, I mean, what was happening to the people of Israel at the time um, that this prophecy was written? Yeah. Well, again, so I would definitely disagree with Rashi on the issue of the justice of God. And I think that one of the things that you need to realize, and I don't think people always realize that, is if Rashi's correct, and the God of Israel is not a very nice God. If Rashi's interpretation is correct, then, then the God of Israel is a moral monster. Let me explain to you what I mean. Okay. So the way the way that Rashi's interpretation works is he says that, you know, 
And Isaiah 52, verse 13, behold, my servant will prosper. Well, who is who is my servant? Well, look in the larger context, starting from Isaiah 41, you know, Israel constantly is being called my servant, my servant Israel, my servant Jacob. He's correct. Okay, he's absolutely correct. But within that larger context, you also have um, other passages that focus specifically not just on the title, my servant, but the actual role of a servant of the Lord in the plan of God, a role of, of redemption. And this servant comes and he's he's intended to redeem the people of Israel. Maybe I'm getting my head on myself. So, so Rashi, let me just explain Rashi. So Rashi would explain that, see, Israel is the servant. That's number number one. Number two in Isaiah 52, verse 15, basically it says that kings will shut their mouths. Kings will be in awe. The nations will be in shock over this servant. Well, Isaiah 53, verses 1 through following, is this first-person plural confession. We. We didn't believe all we like sheep. He suffered for us. And so what Rashi says is, here you go. This is the confession of those Gentiles and kings from 52 verse 15. In other words, 52 verse 15 speaks about the reaction of the nations. And so then Isaiah turns on the recorder. He puts the microphone and he gets his first podcast, right? And he says, here, now let's hear what the nations have to say. And so it's the nation's confession that Israel, the suffering servant, suffered for their sins, Okay. Now, let me just simply say this. The reason that this path, this Rashi's interpretation is really problematic is what he's basically saying then is that the way that God atones for anti-Semites is through their anti-Semitism. In other words, that Israel is this suffering servant. Israel is this innocent servant. Israel doesn't do anything wrong. And yet God, it says in chapter 53, verse 10, delights to crush his servant, delights to crush them. How does he crush his servant? He crushes them through the, the, the cruelties of the nations. And in the nations being cruel to Israel, God uses their cruelty to atone for them. And so the mission of Israel is to be the scapegoat for the world. And, and so... Yet in the Torah, God promises that if Israel is obedient, right, that he'll bless them for it, number one. Right. God also, whenever whenever there's any actions of anti-Semitism, whenever any nation raises their head up, any any adversary, adversary comes against Israel, they're judged. Even if God raises them up for judgment, they're judged. But then in Isaiah 53, what Rashi's saying but in this case, not only are they not judged for treating Israel cruelly, they're forgiven for their sins because of the brutalization of Israel's servant. And so it, 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 it comes out into a place where you, it's sickening to think, are you saying, I, I'm going to be, I'm going to be really, uh, how do you say, Kitsoni, um, really uh, extreme. extreme. Are you saying that the gas chambers are being used? to atone for the Nazi's sins, it's repulsive, it's disgusting. Right. So it's morally reprehensible. So to say that 
Israel being brutalized by the will of God to atone for the nations so that, you know, there's something in us that reacts as it can't be possible. But at the same time, we're very aware of passages in the Hebrew Bible where an individual Israelite suffers on behalf of his people, unjustly, unfairly suffers, but suffers for their sake. So Joseph would be a great example. Joseph was mistreated by his brothers. Right. He was he was treated terribly, but but in the end, God used it to bring life to the people of Israel, and also He brought life to to the nations, to the Egyptians. Likewise, Moses was treated very poorly by Israel in the wilderness. You know, when he first came to rescue them, he was rejected, and so you know Moses is known as this inter interceder who prayed for his people and said, God, if if you're not going to forgive them, then erase me from the book of life. And so Moses suffered and he was rejected and they quarreled against him, but he lived for the sake of Israel. He did it for their sake. And eventually our people recognized the greatness of Moses. Even at the time we didn't, we, we, we didn't recognize it. And so if you look at Isaiah 53, the individual explanation that we're not talking about the nation's reaction to Israel, but to an individual Israelite who our people reject, but through his rejection results in the forgiveness of our sins is, is, is far more palatable. It's far more acceptable. It's far more, it's far more consistent with other scriptures. And Rashi's interpretation, what's really interesting too, is that his method of interpretation called the pshat, it was kind of a, a way people mistake it with the literal meaning of the Hebrew Bible, but that's not what pshat does. The pshat is the simplest refutation of the Christian interpretation. That's what pshat does. And so Rashi's looking for details within the immediate context to show that this passage has to be Israel. The problem is, is that Rashi does not address the larger context, which is Isaiah 40 through 55, which scholars have described as Isaiah's new Exodus. He describes the future redemption in the light of Exodus, of the first Exodus. And so Isaiah is constantly describing the future as another Exodus. Now, why is that important? Well, who was, who was the most significant figure other than God in Israel's Exodus out of Egypt? Moses. And there's a close relationship between Moses and the people. So, for instance, Moses is rescued from drowning in the water in the beginning of the story, just like Israel, right? Moses meets God at Mount Sinai first in the burning bush so that later Israel will meet God at burning Mount Sinai. And so there's a, a close association. And so likewise, if you read about the servant of the Lord passages in Isaiah 50 through 55, you see... Yes, the nation is called the servant of the Lord as a title, but am, am, amidst the people, you have one servant who actually represents them perfectly. He's a royal servant, like a king. He's a priestly servant. He 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 intercedes. He's a, a prophetic, he's got a prophetic ministry. And by the way, one of the key key aspects of being a prophet in Israel is to be rejected. That's a, that's a key criterion to, are you really a prophet? How do we know? Does Israel receive you or reject you at first? You're rejected, you're a prophet, 
right? And so this picture of one like Moses who brings in a new redemption, a new exodus. And so the messianic interpretation makes sense of the larger context that the Messiah, the servant is like a, like a new Moses. Mm-hmm. And it also doesn't go against the justice of God. Well, I, yeah, I'm not saying this myself, but I've heard um, some people say, well, that could, that new uh, servant could be, you know, the prophet like Moses could be Jos- uh, um, Joshua coming right after him. And what are the arguments against that? Well, I mean, that's obviously not reading the context because Isaiah 50 through 55 and the whole second half of the book of Isaiah 40 through 66 Again, we talk about promises for the future. We're not just talking about references to the past. So in the context of Isaiah 40 through 55 or 40 through 66, Isaiah is kind of unfleshing out some of the earlier promises in the first half of the book that one day all nations will come and not march against Jerusalem, but march up to Jerusalem. Not with you know, not to attack them with weapons, but to march up with those weapons to beat them into plowshares. And so the whole context of 40 through 55 of Isaiah is dealing with future it's it's a future redemption. It's not something that has taken place in the past. So Joshua, that whole interpretation would be just it would be ridiculous because it's it's it doesn't fit the context. Great. So so what you're saying is if you're reading the 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 Bible read it through, read it in context uh, so that you can understand more clearly, not just what you're reading, but where things are leading and where things are coming from. Like a movie, like you always like to say, when you're reading the scripture, read it like you would watch a movie. Correct. So so in the Hebrew scriptures, only, only God can be high and lifted up and exalted. Yet, and going, you know, when I said earlier, going back into Isaiah 52, it talks about the servant, yet the servant will be high and lifted up and exalted. Can you talk about that for a second? Yeah. So in the book of Isaiah, again, if you kind of look at these themes of being high and exalted, especially in the first half of the book, um, and, and especially in the first 12 chapters, God is very quick to humble anybody that exalts exalts himself. He just, you know, in Isaiah chapter 10, you've got the king of Assyria that lifts his hand to heaven and boasting and he's proud. You've also got, you know, in the early chapters of Isaiah, the pride of the women, the, the Israelite women's, or you, you, you've got the pride of Ahaz in chapter, in chapter seven. And God, God has no competitors. And yet Isaiah in the year that King Uzziah died in Isaiah chapter six, he sees the Lord the king high and lifted up high and lifted up okay and that phrase there for high and lifted up is the same phrase used of the servant of the lord right and so obviously when you have a whole section in isaiah where god's clear about not sharing his glory and yet describes that that the, you know describes this servant as high and lifted up that's a description that uh, in isaiah only truly and rightfully belongs to God. And and it, it ought not to surprise us because, you know, you actually have these incredibly divine names of Israel's king. You know, when I think of, for instance, Isaiah chapter 9, and so, you know, so the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, 
Those are names and actions that belong exclusively to the God of Israel, and yet those names are given to Israel's king, Messianic king. And so it would be fitting to describe the servant as the Messiah, as high and lifted up. It's completely inconsistent with any kind of a description you'd ever find of Israel in the context of the book of Isaiah. Israel was being judged for trying to take that place. Yeah, so we can understand clearly that why context is so important. And you're you're mentioning a, a, a very large block of Isaiah. I mean, f- 40 through 60, uh, whatever it was when you, what you said. So it'd be the second half of the book, yeah. Yeah, which is a really big portion of that book. Um, so we understand even from, from chapter 50, uh, sorry, from, uh, yeah, from chapter 52, understanding chapter 52 in context helps you, helps be- make Isaiah 53 really clear so you know we can see how the larger context um, is so important for interpreting Isaiah 53. So you were talking about this new Exodus. Um, how how does the servant of the Lord relate more to Moses? Yeah. So again, if you look at if you look at the descriptions of in Isaiah 50 through 55, the prophet constantly describes the future redemption in light of the redemption from Egypt. And on numerous occasions when he introduces the servant, he describes the servant with language that is uniquely tied to Moses. Okay? And so if you think about Moses, what one of the big issues in identifying the servant of the Lord in though there are four passages in Isaiah 40 through 55 that deal they focus on the servant. They're called the servant songs. And they focus specifically on aspects of the servant's ministry. So chapter 42, 49, chapter 50, uh, and then the end of 52 through 53. And what's interesting is that the, the, the challenge in trying to describe the servant's mission is that it's very broad. So there are passages that describe the servant as very royal. He's not a king, but he's royal. It's per, you know, in other words, describe it as royal figure that kings bow down and okay. But then you've got passages where the where where the where the the servant of the Lord is is doing sacrificial things. He's dying for sins. He's a he's a he's a is an offering. Okay. Then then you've got descriptions of the servant who, you know, brings a Torah to the nations, instruction to the nations. Then you've got descriptions of the servant who offers his back to be struck and his beard is plucked out in Isaiah 50. And in 53, he's rejected. And so you try to put these pieces together and you think these pieces don't fit together very well unless you think of Moses. Because Moses, he was very royal. He wasn't ever called a king per se, but he was clearly royal and he was leading in the nations. And he was the one through whom God gave the Torah to the people of Israel. And you look at the fact that he interceded. You look at the fact that he had a priestly ministry. You know, when when the high priest Aaron sinned, he needed a higher priest. Who was his higher priest? It was Moses. And then the whole theme of rejection is is very very crucial in the story of Moses. In other words, it sets the paradigm for what it is to be truly a prophet. Rejected. Rejected. You have the most unpopular unpopular ministry in Israel, and so. Why is Moses fitting here in the servant of the Lord? Because it's only when you look at the servant of the Lord within the context of all the hats that Moses wore, you think, oh, wow, 
only a new Moses can fulfill these kinds of promises and kind of take all of these loose ends and tie them together. And so, you know, you have in Deuteronomy 18, 15, a promise that God would raise up a prophet like Moses. The fact that that's about an individual and not a school of prophets is confirmed in Deuteronomy 34, 10, where God says specifically that he had not raised up a prophet like Moses. In other words, it's clearly individualizing that that passage in, in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And so this longing for one who would be like Moses is, I think, part of the prophetic hope. And so the servant of the Lord has to be like Moses. And lo and behold, when you start to look at the ministry of Jesus, when you start to see the things he's doing, even the death of Jesus on Passover, What's really remarkable is that in Isaiah 52, verses 10 through 12, which is just a few verses, it's the, it's the immediate context of Isaiah 53, and you see that Isaiah is, is he's, he's referring to Exodus chapter 12, that Israel this time will not come out in haste, unlike the first Exodus. Well, what's remarkable about that, he's, he's, he's quoting Exodus 12, and in Exodus 12, it's all about the Passover lamb. And so he's just quoted a passage about Passover, and then he introduces the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so the fact that Jesus died on Passover, the fact that Jesus was brought out of Egypt, the fact that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, the fact that Jesus went up a mountain, brought his disciples and gave him his law. I mean, the the fact that there, there's so many parallels, the fact that when Jesus was born and the Hebrew babies, the Hebrew males under two years of age were killed. That, 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 that's, that's, that's just like the story of Moses and, and Herod is very much like a Pharaoh. And so the point is, is that the New Testament clearly, clearly identified Jesus as this one like Moses, that the one that Isaiah was talking about is Jesus. Yeah, pretty much the only one that can fit the bill, right? Correct. Absolutely. There, there, there are no other candidates. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Seth, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Um, can you let people know how to find your literature or anything else you want to share with the audience? Well, um, one of the books that, uh, I'd encourage anybody to read, reading Moses, seeing Jesus, you can get that on Amazon. And, uh, it's a book about how, how the law points to Jesus and, and also our relationship to the law. It's a question that's commonly asked. Um, uh, one of the books that just came out recently by um, Michael Rydelnik was the editor of the, the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. I've got, I believe I've got eight or nine articles there on Messianic prophecy in the Psalms and in the Torah. Um, also, you know, I, I serve uh, with One for Israel, the ministry One for Israel. Yeah. So we always have, you know, there are opportunities to follow us on our Facebook and follow us on the and our YouTube channel. And there are many times I get to talk, I get to share. So Yeah, both of our testimonies are up on that the YouTube channel of One for Israel. Yeah. So Amar could be there with you. Yeah, yeah. Praise God for that. So I'll be posting the links to these uh the things in the description box below. So be sure to uh check those out. And if you have any questions or would like to chat with us or one of us, feel free to go to our website at jewsforjesus.org and there you can chat with one of us anonymously. Take care. God bless you all. Thank you, Seth. Welcome. Jews for Jesus is a nonprofit organization that exists to support you as you explore Jewish life with faith in Jesus. 
We facilitate Jewish community all around the world as we provide spiritual care and local services. We also raise awareness about the fact that for thousands of years, there have been Jewish people like us who have embraced Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. And even though he was possibly the most famous Jewish person in all of history, there are still many Jewish people who have never had the chance to be exposed to the teachings of Jesus. And that's something we seek to change. For more information, to chat with us live, and to sign up for our newsletter, check us out at JewsForJesus.org or on social media at Facebook and Instagram.